ideally, if we want a, a, a society that promotes well-being and helps vulnerable individuals who have been subjected to this type of abuse to, to help them heal and get the most out of life, that's exactly what organizations should be doing. They should be going back and trawling through people who they've had contact with, checking mm -hmm. to see that they're okay, yeah. not distancing themselves from, from the problem and hoping that no one comes forward. Hello and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project or NSRLP. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. Right, and uh, today, Julie, you're talking to somebody really interesting. I re this conversation was really fascinating and really moving. This is David Greenwood, mm -hmm. who is a lawyer in a firm in the north of England, Switolskis, where he is the head of their child abuse department. And his remarkable practice involves lawsuits against both the Anglican and the Catholic churches, as well as the English equivalents of children's aid societies. He takes both contemporary and also historic sex abuse cases, works with survivors and advocates pressing for change in those institutions, and in particular how the churches respond to child abuse allegations uh, against members of the clergy and how they protect children and young people. The Anglican Church, among others, would love David Greenwood to get burned out and <laughs> go away. But as you will see... In this frank conversation with David, which we're calling Taking On the Clerical Establishment, that has really got no chance of happening. Hello. Hello, David. It's Julie. How are you? Hi, Julie. Yeah, great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I was just a bit worried there for a minute that this wasn't going to work in the UK, this uh, recording app, but I think we're good. I think we're good. So, um... The first thing I wanted to ask you about really was why you do this incredibly difficult work that you do. So I, I first came across you and your work when I went home to the UK for a visit and I watched an item on the TV news about lawsuits against members of the clergy uh, for historic sexual abuse. And I did a little bit of Googling. And I found your website and found you were handling a lot of sex abuse cases against members of the Anglican and Catholic churches, among others. So my first question is, why do you do this work? There's a lot of other kinds of work a lawyer can specialize in and bringing abuse claims against the church seems like a very hard choice. So why were you drawn to work on these cases? Well, I suppose the short answer is that it's evolved uh, through the different types of work that I've done. Um, but, but my background, when I first started work as a solicitor uh, in the north of England, was working with guys who had who were in trouble with the police. Uh, mm. So I spent my first three or four years in practice in, in and out of the criminal courts and police stations, um, got to know young guys of my age who had got into trouble um, and a number of them were saying to me, look, 
these things had happened to me in, in children's homes um, mm. in the local area. So I was... So David, they were telling you that they had a past history that had messed them up, basically, and that's why they were now where they were? That's right. They were, they were the victims of, of sex, sexual abuse when they were put into children's homes in, in Yorkshire, in England. And so I realized that you know this was not these were not just one offs and that these were this was a ring of abusers working in these children's homes. So I started representing them in their cases to bring compensation claims because obviously they suffered the abuse itself and their, their lives had been you know, worsened by the whole experience. Uh, but then you'll remember around about two thousand, two thousand and one, the whole Catholic Abuse in, in the, the east coast of the USA, South yes. Africa, and uh, from there there were, there were more and more people coming forward about abusing the Catholic Church in the UK, and people found their way to me because I was already doing this child abuse work in a time when actually it was pretty difficult to do this work because the law was really against us. Say some more about um, that. Yeah, the. Back in the, well, before 2001, it was it was hard to to show that uh, you could sue an institution for abuse done by uh, one of their employees. You, it had to be a really close relationship between the mm. the work done by the organisation and uh, the work done by the employee. And in 2001, there was a case called Lister versus Hesley Hall. Uh, which opened that up and made that that connection um, and made employers more responsible for things going wrong, for their employees abusing people. It was hard in terms of bringing the organization in to be responsible, but it was also extremely hard because we had a full stop three-year limitation day, that's a time limit, from the date at which someone realizes that they have suffered harm. So we were doing legal gymnastics, Hmm. working with a psychologist to show that people had only really realized that what happened to them had caused them harm. So I worked with a guy who had been abused in a a young offenders institute that then had met him to a detention center in the Northeast. And we were able to turned our three-year fixed time limit into an, an elastic time limit, depending on depending on the fairness of the case, essentially. Well, that was a huge yeah. breakthrough. That was a, an enormous, yeah. made an enormous difference, I'm sure. But, but you know, in addition, you've already touched on this, David, and what you just said. Working the legal gymnastics, as you called them just now, is a very, very important part of this and obviously as a lawyer in some ways that's you know your primary responsibility but but you and I both know and many of the people listening to this also would know that many institutions which includes the churches but also residential children's homes schools uh, young offender centers they these institutions seem to be chronically resistant to accepting responsibility for sexual abuse they they express you know, regret and maybe there's a kind of very broad public apology made, but that doesn't necessarily translate into actually accepting responsibility and doing something about it. There's still a, a lot of lawsuits being contested, and I know that you know that because you're contesting a lot of them. 
and people just generally being discouraged from bringing these claims by the awful process they have to go through. So, you know, aside from the obvious, which is none of these institutions want to pay compensation, there must be other reasons why the churches and the other institutions are in such denial and they're still dragging their feet about real reforms, about reporting abuse, investigating it and sanctions. What do you think are the reasons for that? Possibly two major reasons. Um, one being that they find it difficult to, to acknowledge that it's happened within their organization um, and they want to protect their, the reputation of their organization. Uh, second, um, and if I'm being really truthful about the situation, I detect that the, as you put it, uh, their, their failure to, act, to acknowledge and, and do the right thing and make it difficult for people is is a strategic plan uh, to prevent people from coming forward and making it a cold atmosphere when people do come forward. So, so it prevents people from coming forward. So what you're, I think you're saying, David, is that this is not just a coincidence. I mean, obviously, any institution finds it difficult to take responsibility for something as dreadful as sexual abuse. But in fact, a lot of these institutions and, and the church have done so in a very sort of general, we're very sorry way. Um, but that the continued discouragement of individual claims and all the barriers that are put in people's way, you're saying you think this is a deliberate strategy? Very, very definitely. Obviously, church insurers don't want the church, you know, opening its arms and saying, come on, everyone that's had anything happen to them, come back to us, we'll look after you, we'll pay you, you know, thousands and thousands mm. of pounds or dollars um, because you know, their, their, their insurance premiums or insurance companies would uh, suffer serious dents to their profits. Uh, but ideally, if we want a, a society that promotes well-being and helps vulnerable individuals who have been subjected to this type of abuse to, to help them heal and get the most out of life, that's exactly what organizations should be doing. They should be going back and trawling through people who they've had contact with, checking mm -hmm. to see that they're okay, yeah. not distancing themselves from, from the problem and hoping that no one comes forward. The churches of, of all organizations should be reaching out to make sure that people who have been affected by abuse in, in their organization should be should be helped. But that's not the society we live in. We live in one that's essentially driven by greed and money and you know the interests of insurance companies and their shareholders. So it, that just doesn't happen. So David, do you think that it would be different in any way? You know, I'm thinking about the people who might be listening to this who themselves are members of churches. Do you think it should be different for a church as opposed to, you know, a corporation or whatever? Do you see them as having a different le level of moral responsibility towards the people who have been their members? I suppose uh, I'm a lawyer. I mean, they're behaving so they're... like any other corporation. I, I recognize that. But I'm just wondering that even though they're behaving like that, you know, do you ever feel that, oh, come on, this is a church. 
and it's different. It should be different. Yeah, I, rec- I recognize that their legal obligation is only to do what they, what they have to do legally. They are an organization like any other blue chip company. Uh, but, yeah, I, I certainly, when I embarked on suing the church, I expected more from them. I expected some mm-hmm. kind of Christian, in inverted commas, humanity from them. And for them not to take issue with you know, whether things happen or, or in what order things happen or whether people have got their memories mixed up or whether they've brought their cases out of mm-hmm. time. I didn't expect that from them. Yeah, I, I do expect a, a higher level of moral rectitude, whatever that is, from, yeah. from churches. So, David, I wanted to just to switch a bit here for a moment. Um, you know, and this question I think is maybe, you know, especially relevant in light of what you told me about how you first got into this work through working with young offenders and finding that a number of them had a history of sexual abuse. You know, in, in law school, we, we tend to teach our students to strive for, you know, what is often grandly described as professional detachment. And in that approach, empathy is seen as, you know, somewhat of a distraction. It's too emotional. So empathy with the client is discouraged. I should add that this is not the way that I have ever approached teaching, but this is very much part of the law school and the legal education culture. But when I look at the work that you do in particular, it's really hard to imagine how you cannot be empathetic when you work with people who've been tra- traumatized all the time. And and I'm wondering, you know, given the particular challenges of the clients that you're working with and what's happened to them in their lives, how do you keep some kind of a balance between empathy but also professionalism? And, and you know, have you you've practiced for a long time. What are, your, what are the lessons you've learned over the years about empathy? I'm sure that younger lawyers would really like to hear about that. Yeah, uh, during my type of work, it's impossible to, to not understand the whole nature of what it is to be someone who has suffered this type of child sexual abuse. They're spending so many hours with a person explaining their psychological report for the first time to them, explaining them why they do different things, why their behavior is you know, erratic at times, why they sometimes turn to alcohol or drugs or whatever. It's impossible not to get to know them really well. As a whole um, person. Fr- yeah, yeah, and actually become friends with many of them. So I have to admit I'm not completely detached from, from these individuals and, and and many of them I consider to be close friends. So do you that, feel that ever gets in the way of what you do for them? Is that is that ever a problem, or is it just part of the way that you work with them? Do you know what? I think it actually drives me on to do a better job. I think it drives me on to go and do a little bit more research, do a little bit more evidence gathering to make sure that we do get a good result. Yeah. So I, I think it does. It certainly does help. In terms of detachment, uh, well, I think I have my wife to, to thank for that. She, she has encouraged me. Um, she's a police woman, by the way. Um, yep. She encouraged me to switch off when I get home, essentially. So that's what I try and do. And it's well, that's work, important for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, it, of course, you know, you can't get away from your own brain and it seeps into to, to life. It seeps into your thoughts all the time. And that's that's a healthy way to be. I think if you could 
if you want to be a good lawyer, you need to be thinking about different angles. And sometimes those different angles, you know, they don't just pop into your head between the hours of nine and five. <laughs> so there's no real switch off. And empathy isn't a barrier. In fact, what it, you seem to be saying is that empathy gives you a broader and better understanding of people and also it gives you some more motivation. Well summarized, yeah, I would definitely agree. So, David, full disclosure for the um, benefit of people who are listening, you were my lawyer in my own sexual abuse case against the Anglican Church because as a young person I was sexually abused by an Anglican priest and I've, I've written about this and I think some of the people listening at least will know about this. And when that lawsuit was um, in process, you and I worked together using a couple of, you know, not exactly conventional strategies. Um, we, I published an article in the Church Times to try to shame the church into their first settlement meeting with us, which a strategy, I have to say, that worked extremely well. Um, and then you and I negotiated with the insurers over a new protocol for abuse claims and made that a part of my settlement. But, you know, we both know that the system continues on a daily basis um, to re-victimize people who've been abused, and it's still a very, very painful and difficult process for somebody to both come forward and to bring a claim. So I know this is a really big question, but could you talk for a few minutes here about what you think the most harmful barriers are that remain for sex abuse claimants, and what would a better system look like? Yeah, ultimately, when you boil down all the stuff that I do outside just general casework, what I'm really into is promoting the best quality of life that individuals can possibly have. We only have one life, and to have it tainted or made a lot worse by uh, child sexual abuse um, isn't fair, if you ask me. I mean, I, I was born, thankfully, into a family that wasn't into sexually abusing its children, but... Um, others are not so lucky. So when it happens, I'm really interested in promoting a good quality life. So we need to influence the decision makers or, or, or our opponents um, or the organisations or people who head those organisations to, uh, to not put those barriers up, to not put up the barriers of you know, this, this cold atmosphere that I talked of a few minutes ago um, and that individuals should be listened to, to be welcomed in warmly, to not be uh, treated confrontationally. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the criminal justice system is extremely um, cold in the way that it deals with individuals who come forward to, to report. We're making some strides in, in, in this country, but provision is very patchy. You know to your own cost that the way in which the police respond um, is not good and is mm. unwelcoming. And many people, I'm sure, don't come forward as just because the police are, are not very good at it. And then we have a civil justice system which isn't, well, doesn't promote the, the interests of individuals but seems to promote the interests of corporate, corporates, or of insurance companies, or of big organisations when it continues to focus on the time limit and, and the, the length of time that's passed, it will require claimants to justify why they've come forward 
many years afterwards, when we all know the reason why claimants don't want to come forward. The shame, the guilt, the stigma, the, the worrying how their, their friends and family will react if they knew what had happened. Even just accepting themselves that this has happened to them, it can take, as I know, many, many years and growing into maturity to really come to terms with something that happens when you're much, much younger. So, David, if you could prioritize one thing that you would like to be better, we're just about to begin um, in the UK the inquiry on uninstitutionalized child abuse, which you're going to be participating in, already are, I'm going to be participating in, and there is a lot of discussion about what those outcomes could be. If there was one single thing that you think would make a really big difference to how we as a society, as you put it earlier on, manage this issue, understand this issue, provide support for victims, what would that be? Yeah, it would be to centralize responses to child sexual abuse allegations and take them away from even the criminal justice system, take them away from the police, put them into an individual, an independent organization, which would be universally recognized as being a specialist and able to direct individuals to support organizations. They could send a person to the police and check that the police are doing their job, send the person to get some counseling, get check that they're getting the right counseling. They could make sure that they get proper compensation and begin to rebuild their lives. That way, we get more people who are at present are suffering in silence into the system, get their quality of life improved, and society would be a whole lot better. Thank you very much indeed, David. I admire what you're doing so much. Keep going. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Your support has been really tremendous. Bye for now. That conversation, it was so powerful and so interesting to me and it kind of <laughs> you cover a lot of points there I guess and, mm. and this issue is one that obviously a lot of people find very hard to talk about but not enough people are talking about in the right I ways I think unfortunately um, so one of the one of the things that really stood out to me is when you asked David um, why are churches dragging their feet so much about mm. taking responsibility for this and my kind of initial reaction to that and I do as David said and you said I think it is part of it is that they just just don't want to accept that this has happened and kind of want to shut their eyes yeah, and it's denial denial yeah absolutely um but what was really interesting was his response about how after all of this time working on these cases he's come to believe that there is um an element of deliberate strategy going on mm -hmm. and certainly from my own experience working with David on my own case and now on others you see that pretty clearly uh, I know that sounds very chilling mm -hmm. but these cases are being put into an adversarial framework and are being contested and fought and the objective is to defeat the opposition and the opposition here is the person who is alleging the sexual abuse and that really is the the number one objective here so when he talks about this being a deliberate matter of strategy 
I've certainly seen plenty of evidence of that, and I'm sure he's seen far more. But I would add another point, too, to what David said, and we, he and I have talked about this before as well when we're trying to figure out all the different reasons. There are lots of different reasons why the churches are finding it so difficult to come to terms with this. And I think another one is that this is a hierarchical institution in which some individuals have a great deal of power. And there is, I think, almost a sense of impunity amongst people with power in social institutions, which unfortunately, even though this might sound a little crazy, I think even extends to the kinds of grotesque behaviors that we are seeing more and more reports of in terms of clerical sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way in which that also has kept some people in this group secure in a feeling that no one is really ever going to chase them up and find them out. And certainly that has been the experience of many survivors that actually finding someone to chase them up and find them out is very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I mean, it reminds me in a kind of a literal way, I guess, of the expression holier than thou. Um, <laughs> and it's this kind of assumption that, well, I'm, I'm ordained, I'm, I'm chosen by God. And so mm. therefore, you know, I'm, I'm not held to the same responsibility. You can't touch me. You can't touch me. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that um, that struck me about this conversation was when you were speaking with David about how to balance empathy versus professionalism. And I was recently recently listening to um, another podcast um, that had an episode on empathy, and it was very interesting because they approached it from the idea that for professionals like doctors. Uh, that balance is very important and empathy Mm -hmm. is obviously very necessary in order to connect with patients and understand what they're going through, but that they also need to maintain a certain level of distance, uh, both for their own sake and for the sake of the patient. But as David said... He sort of blew that up, didn't he? Yeah, I liked it. Well, he really surprised me in his answer to that. But in some ways, I think it's going to depend on the individual, but in some ways, I think that some people listening to this who practice law, that answer will make sense. He effectively said, what's the problem Mm -hmm. with feeling a personal connection to my client? It just makes me work harder. And I think that if you are that committed and impassioned in your empathy, then you certainly run the risk of taking an emotional burden and paying an emotional price when things don't go the way that you want them to go. But I think that David Greenwood would say that that just comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. So I think that for the students that I teach in law school and for young lawyers just going into practice who've had this idea beaten into them, not only should they balance empathy and detachment, but actually detachment should always win out. I think that listening to what David said about that is very instructive. Yeah, uh, that he finds it inspirational, that it spurs exactly. him on. Exactly. Um, the last thing that, and this was the thing that most stood out to me about um, about your conversation with David, was the idea that churches should be held, or because they hold themselves to a higher moral standard, that therefore they should be held to a higher moral standard and how frustrating and 
disappointing he found it when after kind of assuming that they would take more responsibility and be more horrified and and um find ways to address this problem uh the church has behaved like any other corporation corporation or institution and um is fighting this and being adversarial as you were as you were saying earlier and um that bothers me very much as somebody i myself um uh, attend a church and Mm. the the idea that the leaders of that church would learn that something like this was going on and be confronted with um, legal proceedings and not be absolutely chastened and horrified and do everything they could possibly think of to make it right um, is, is really repugnant. Um, I find it, I find it really, really distressing that churches are responding the way that they are. And David's suggestion that, um, churches what they should be doing is when uh, abuse allegations come forward they should be looking back and trying to reach out to yeah. every single person that may have come was affected front, by was that affected. person yeah. yeah and they're not doing that no. and uh, that seems like a no-brainer that of course they should be doing that absolutely it's i think that the suggestion that a genuine remorse would be reflected in actually following up which wouldn't be too difficult to do, but I believe never gets done. Mm -hmm. And tracking down, for example, individuals who were in a church youth group where there was known to be an abuser or a choir where there was known to be an abuser, that would give the public protestations by the church, which are always about, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, so much more genuine weight. Mm And I think that the fact that that doesn't happen and instead there's an effort to, in a business model, as David described it, limit liability and costs, tells you everything you need to know about that apology, that it isn't really taking moral culpability, mm-hmm. that in fact it's simply doing whatever uh, is, is the minimum that will, for the time being at least, get the churches out of trouble. In other news, over the next few weeks, Jumping Off the Ivory Tower is going to be looking at issues of judging and self-representation. For instance, how should judges treat SRLs? How can they work together and what are the trust issues? Right on topic, an interesting decision on judicial bias came down this week from the Alberta Court of Appeal. The court agreed with SRL Angela Carbone that the neutrality of her case management judge was compromised by his earlier relationship with one of the lawyers on the other side. In Carbone v. McMahon, the SRL plaintiff argued successfully that Justice Nixon did not fully disclose the terms of the earlier retainer. The court also noted the two-year delay in hearing the plaintiff's arguments for recusal. Angela Carbone told us, As a self-represented plaintiff and an outsider to the legal system, it's important that I can have confidence our justice system will adjudicate my lawyer abuse case fairly. When I learned the opposing defense counsel was recently our judge's own lawyer for an unrelated matter, and that little detail was given about their solicitor-client retainer, I was concerned about potential bias. The judge declined to recuse himself, but the Court of Appeal found there wasn't sufficient disclosure of the recent retainer and granted my appeal. I'm hopeful that the rest of my case will be adjudicated fairly. 
We also note that the judicial review application against the Canadian Judicial Council being brought by Donald Best, case caption Best v. AG of Ontario and Shaughnessy, is being heard in Toronto this week, and we will be reporting on that outcome when it is known. With continuing media attention to the current high-profile criminal cases in which defendants are appearing without counsel, Julie was asked to be a guest on CBC Radio's Ontario Today on Thursday, November 23rd. Many of those calling into the show were family and civil SRLs, and you can click the link on the podcast page to hear Julie's discussion with them and the conversation around issues facing self-reps in family and civil court. And finally... In 2018, NSRLP will be releasing the results of our tracking and analysis of case law in Canada involving SRLs. One piece of this, a very important piece, involves case outcomes. The initial analysis supports the reality that SRLs are often disadvantaged when they are up against expert counsel. As this debate heats up, Harvard Law Professor Jean Shard has been pondering three studies from a colleague in the Harvard Statistics Department, which suggests that it is by no means certain that SRLs will do worse than those with unbundled or full representation. Of course, there are numerous variables to consider. Was the legal professional involved a law student, a new associate, or an experienced lawyer? How much work was the SRL otherwise able to do with coaching? How complex was the case? We expect all these questions and more to be raised by the rollout of our SRL case law database in 2018. In the meantime, take a look at Jean Shard's provocative article, which asks, do lawyers really make a difference? You can find Shard's article, as well as further information on all these stories, on our podcast webpage at representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. Next week's episode is called Judges and SRLs, Opening a Dialogue. This is my conversation with Justice David Price, who sits in Brampton Family Court. And it's a fascinating insight into the ways in which self-represented litigants can maximize their chances of a successful and a just settlement. Tune in next week. Tune in next week.